you see there is no aspect of general health and no aspect of reproductive health or women's health that is not influenced by lifestyle. Not a single medical condition. So whether it is you know, endometriosis, whether it's polycystic ovary syndrome, whether it's fibroids, these are all estrogen dependent conditions, whether it is breast cancer, ovarian cancer, womb cancer, for men, prostate cancer, bowel cancer, for both sexes. So basically there's no aspect that will not benefit. It's not that I don't need to do surgery. It's not that if I, I don't need to do, do a cesarean section for somebody whose baby is not going to be able to be born vaginally. That's not the point. The point is they can be helped during pregnancy, for example, of avoiding pregnancy-induced diabetes, they can be helped with you know, reducing their pain symptoms of endometriosis or painful periods. They can be helped with regards to their acne and their excess hair growth when it comes to polycystic ovary syndrome if they don't want to go on the pill, if they're trying for a pregnancy. So there are so many aspects. There's no aspect that doesn't get helped. Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Hope, wherever you are in the world, that... Listen to this as a moment of solace, that you get something from this, that you enjoy it, to go to this podcast to inspire you to be happier, to be healthier, and welcome aboard. This week's podcast is sponsored by The Veg Box, our new book. It's a wonderful new book that's inspiring you to eat more veg. We've taken the 10 most common veg. We've done them 10 ways using 10 ingredients or less. It's really practical and simple. Our promise is that it'll save you back the cost of the book within a month because 30% of the food you buy is wasted. It's going to teach you how to cook plant-based. It's class. Every rest, every chapter is by vegetable. And where do I find more about it, Dave? Oh, it's available for pre-order on the internet. You'll find it in the internet. And would it be on the show notes? Yes, it would be in the show notes or in our bio. So anyway, that's our sponsor. And now to this week's episode. But before that, we're going to have a chat. Are we? Yes. (laughs) You're going to have a little chat. Sarah's here. Sarah's here. So that means chat time. Yes. (laughs) Do you know, I was thinking, you know the way like nearly most, most if not all episodes, we come back and we're like, oh, we've learned something. We're going to start applying that. And the latest one has been uh, scheduling in our diaries and box scheduling, which I feel like we've all been very good at. Um, but I was thinking to myself, like, I know where Dave is all the time. I know when he's doing his focused work, which is box date. I know when he's got calls. I know he's got so many things going on. And then Steve, I'm like, where is Steve? And Steve's like, <laughs> I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And I'm like, where are you? Where were you today? <laughs> uh, let's see, where is it? You went missing. I was in the kitchen. I was in the kitchen. Well, you just really start nice. to look on Instagram stories to yeah. find out where Steve that's, is. That's, that's the best schedule. way of finding out where Steve is. You won't look at his diary, but you'll, you can... Follow him around the internet. Well, but then um, there was something cupping in your diary. Oh, we did was it, yeah, cupping to cupping most, men, to, really to, to most men listening, it sounds like something different. But it was a coffee cupping. So we have a roastery and our dear friend Paul Grimes is the head roaster. And I hadn't seen Paul in ages. And the roaster got done up. And Arnie, who's our head chef, was going to come down. And Atan, who's our, one of our bakers, wanted to come along too. And we're going to try six different coffees. So there was a natural, there was a anaerobic natural coffee there was coffee from India coffee from Thailand which I'd never tried uh, there was some African coffees and we were doing a cupping so what's really interesting is the coffees are laid out all kind of brewed the same way and you gotta you know, you know the way when you're told as a kid not to slurp like slurping is bad in coffee tasting he or she who slurps the most is the best sounds gross the whole idea is that you're sucking in oxygen and it's bringing that oxygen more likely to go up your nasal canal where your olfactory glands are. So 70% of your smell or your aroma is actually in your nose. So you're... 70% of your taste, isn't your it? Your taste, yeah, comes yeah. from your nose So when you're your drinking mouth. coffee normally, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like when no, you drink wine. No, I guess there's no supposed to, but if you're really getting into the nuance of flavour and you want to compare different... Because it's like... 
coffee is coffee, but when you compare it, you have something to go against. So it was fascinating anyway, because coffee has more flavor notes than red wine. Did you know? So that was where oh. you went missing to today. Yeah, yeah. Missing in, missing down and, a well and of in coffee. In case you're wondering why I'm jacked up, it's because I love the coffee. That's why you're <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Usually when you go for a coffee, it's like, oh, I'm really busy, Steve. I've got to go. To-. No, but like, I, it's weird because uh, you're going to have to start putting your di- stuff in your diary because we put so much, we put everything in our diaries uh, now. Well, that, that's this week. On Sunday, on Sunday, I think you texted me and said, I know, like, I know you're, because you, you got like 15 <laughs> notifications yeah. of like invites to things. Yeah. And ex- David accepted this. Yeah, I was like, whoa why did I get 50 emails all, the, all of a sudden it's like you first checked your emails in the first time in so long and just accepted everything but like now when you send me emails uh, Steve of like oh can you do this can you do that I'm like looking at your diary and like Chapman's nothing to do <laughs> you do it <laughs> have you seen my diary <laughs> so we probably need a better system yeah. for that. that that was last week's podcast I, like I'm dying to listen to that one again yeah Here that I was have. deadly like, like time box calendars and not using a to-do list I, I actually did apply that this week and I was yeah, good with the meetings good. twice this week instead of meetings and even with uh, not quite with Shawnee but with Jody I sent him on a big spiel like it's like and his, his the new philosophy is that if you're scheduling a meeting do the homework on it so you're not just having the meeting to like be lazy and kind of kick the can around a bit yeah and just uh, brainstorming in it do it before yeah, yeah, yeah. but another one I was thinking of and I only noticed yesterday because we were filming a YouTube video and uh, I was filming it and um, uh, was the James Nestor one talking about nasal breathing and Dave, you're always on to me like, sir, stop my breathing or you're, Deep you're gasping live longer. So I remember while I was filming, I was like, breathe through my nose, breathe through my nose. And I was really focusing on it. But then when I went to edit it this morning, I was like, oh my God, I could just hear myself breathing the whole time. It's horrible. <laughs> so I was like, mm, might need to rethink that one. But yeah. Jesus, good. We're getting lots into the podcast. But you're, you're, you're still, I see yeah, you running today. around nasal breathing. Yeah, today breathing. I went for a good run nasal breathing. It's hard. Did really you yeah. strap arrive? Uh, I did order a chin strap, which yeah. sounds weird and perverse again, <laughs> because because like taping my mouth like a hostage every night is not weird and perverse. The other day, Steve came into the kitchen and goes, "Oh, Dave, there's some of your like hostage tape which you put in your mouth every night." And in case you're wondering what I'm saying, every night I tape my mouth shut so I breathe through my nose, which sounds weird. And I'm still like, I'd say I have a fifty percent success rate. Like half the time I wake up and it's stuck to my ear. The other half of the time it's like on the bed. Dave, or you're whatever. really sad on this. But it's Sounds like so some sexy. days I do get a success and I'm nearly like at 5am I'm nearly like tapping Sab going, Sasa, like I've managed to sleep with like my mouth shut. Uh, what does Sab think of all these things? Oh, she doesn't care less. She's like, oh, she's you do so you, funny. I do me. She's, she's, she's so easy. She's great. I mean, like what, what do we call them? Hobbies now? Habits? No, interests. Like, curiosities. Curiosities. Yeah. There's yeah. Some, always some, something new each week that I'm shining on about and people think I'm so annoying. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great. It's oh, great. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder how we're going to apply this week's podcast. Uh, well, th- this, one, this one was amazing. So Dr. Neetu, her last name is hard to pronounce. Yeah, I don't want to say it wrong. So anyway, Dr. Neetu, amazing senior <laughs> consultant gynecologist. Amazing. 35 years practicing as a consultant gynecologist. She's got so many special interests in terms of like women's health, particularly in terms of like painful periods, in terms of um, PCOS, in terms of menopause, in terms of um, what's that other one called? Endometriosis. Like so many different, really interesting things. And uh, she's also got a speciality in terms of lifestyle medicine. She's very into the practical application of beyond kind of like, you know, giving prescriptions. She's into, well, what do we eat? How do we live? Like, how do we impact and really, like it was fascinating. It really, really was. I I, I got loads and of And she does have a book just the day 
we got to speak to her today. There was a book coming out, her book called Living PCO Free. She's brilliant anyway. Yeah, amazingly. really, really good. So this is a great conversation for anyone who has female genitalia. This is fascinating. It really, really is. And uh, I hope you get loads from it. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. Neetu. Lovely to meet you guys. And yeah, thank you for inviting me. Well, I remember going to the plant-based uh, professionals conference in London a few years ago and you spoke at that and you're amazing. So, Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So and I've, I've loved kind of researching, uh, just listening to a couple of podcasts that you did. You're brilliant. You really are. You're, yeah, you're uh, powerful. <laughs> I love your philosophical approach to what you do and your passion is admirable. You know, it's to do with the grey hairs, I think. <laughs> well, your hair looks pretty dark to us. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? I just hit 60 on, uh, in Feb, actually. And I was just thinking, when I look back, the last time I looked, I was 30 years old. So I don't know where the last 30 years have gone. I still feel 20 in my head, but I'm 60. So <laughs> must count for something. Jeez. Well, well done. Well done. I, I had an amazing Indian feast on Saturday. I know you're from Calcutta and we went around yes. to friends and they were from Bombay and they had cooked a full, I think what, the, the wife was from Mangalore and she had cooked kind of Southern Indian food. And it was so much fun because it was all eaten with her hands and everything. Yes. And it was just, it was just so tasty. It really was. And it's such, it lends itself to like plant-based food so easy. You know, they were, it, it was is. wonderful. It is. You'll be surprised though that India... Can, it's quite hard to be um, vegan. It's it's easy to be plant based, uh, but because everything often has dairy and uh, ghee and um, you know yogurt, uh, so what happens is that um, it's sort of a new phenomenon because you know as people get more wealthy, they tend to sort of use more animal products. So it can be a bit harder. I'm actually from South India, but I grew up in Calcutta, so. I have a bit of everything. The all of India is in me. <laughs> wow! Jeez. And then you're you're you have one daughter, or two daughters. I have two daughters. We have two daughters. Um, Rohini, who has uh, written today's a very PCOS. good day. The, our book has just literally landed in my house today and is ready for publication. It's heading to all the shops. Twenty uh, eighth of April. So yeah, Rohini wrote. Uh, part four of the book and sort of kept me on the straight and narrow. Every time I talk like a doctor, she'd say, mom, go back to the drawing board um, because you're sounding too much like a doctor and you've got to not speak in medical jargon. Uh, so she was a very good grounding influence for me. And then I have a second daughter who is a, a editor at Time magazine. So wow. she, she did glance at my stuff and said, you know, writing a book is the easiest part. It's when you edit it. And so you have to be willing to take critique. Uh, you know? <laughs> in in a like way, it's almost, in a way, it's almost easy. Like I know for myself, I'm always more open and receptive to get feedback from my children than I would be from yes. others. Because there's such a, a trust and a kind of a, a love yes. really that. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we are very, very blessed. Uh, my husband, of course, on the other hand, liked everything I was writing. And so he keeps saying, why did I not learn that in medical school? How did I not know that? <laughs> you wow. know, because we're not taught a lot of things in medical school. You know, we are taught a few things and then we sort of muddle along after years and years and years of training, thinking that, you know, writing prescriptions or doing surgery, both my husband, my husband's a back surgeon and I, I'm a gynecologist, keyhole surgeon. And so you end up thinking surgery and 
pills are the only way of healing when it's great you know you do need those completely but you also need a lot of other stuff that we were never taught about yeah and I, and I think you like from what I've from reading over the last week really and really loving like you're you're an incredible role model for women you really really are but I I, I think you kind of came to a plant-based or a vegan diet more via your daughter because I think you grew up uh, like on a vegetarian diet yes and then it was your yes. daughter kind of decided to go vegan because she talked about the animals and dairy yes. is kind of like meat and she yeah, was nine years of age. Yeah, she was about nine or 10. I grew up in a vegetarian household, uh, probably cultural to some extent, because I'm a South Indian. And if you don't, if you know the caste system in India, um, you know, the so-called um, oppressor caste or the upper caste tend to, uh, you know, avoid animal um, meats and things like that. Uh, but my mother was actually an ethical objector. So she wasn't doing it for religious uh, reasons. She just knew it was wrong. And she then became, uh, you know, completely, un as soon as she understood the whole link between dairy and meat, she, you know, went vegan for a lot of her, her life. But it was my younger daughter who came home one day and said she was going uh, vegan. And I said, but why can't you go vegetarian? And she said, um, because I had turned vegetarian. I'd eaten meat a few times. I'd eaten goat in my friend's houses a, a few times. I'd eaten chicken with my husband in medical school a few times um, without really realizing what it involved. Because, you know, in India, often the curries just have the pieces of the meat. You don't really see it on a bone or anything like that, uh, at least in those days, we're talking many years ago. And so I never really thought about it. When we moved to the UK, we moved to actually, we moved to Scotland, Dumfries, where my, I was pregnant with my second daughter and she was born in Dumfries, Dumfries and Galloway, the district. Uh, and um, I just thought I'd surprise my husband. You know, in India, I hadn't ever cooked meat or anything. I thought I'd surprise him with some mince. And um, I had no idea, no idea, not the faintest clue what I was doing. So I thought you wash meat just like you would wash a vegetable. So I, I started washing it. And then suddenly I saw all this blood running away. And I thought, oh my God, that's like period blood. That's like the blood when I operate on my patients. That's like the blood that I see in women when they are giving birth. So it was like an instant switch. And the same day I watched a program on BBC that was showing sheep being shown in Australia. Very strange <laughs> But I saw the fear in their eyes and I just thought, you know what, I don't want to eat this, even this once in a year chicken thing. I just don't want to do it. So I became vegetarian, completely vegetarian again. And then when my daughter came home and said uh, that she was going to go vegan, she used to live off sausages. She loved sausages for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So I said, but why can't you just go vegetarian? And so she said, mom, you're not understanding white equals red. So I said, what do you mean by white equals red? She said, well, the same cow that is giving you the white milk after a couple of years, she can't stand anymore. So she gets sent to the slaughterhouse and then she becomes the meat. And I thought, OK, that for me was like a straightaway. I got it. You know, because I, wow. I realized I had to join my daughter. I could not allow her to be uh, following a vegan diet because, you know, this is 20 years ago, more than that, 20, yeah, you know. So 20 years ago, at that point, it was really quite difficult to know exactly how to navigate this. I didn't know any of the vegans. Uh, my brother was a vegan in the US, but I just didn't know anybody enough. My mother wasn't living in India. So 
it was very hard to negotiate and, and navigate that space. So all I knew is I wanted my daughters to eat healthily and I didn't want them to eat crisps and white bread, which I knew were vegan, you know? So I had to really then rethink how to cook and suddenly my taste buds and my palate really changed. And it was, I so, sort of discovered all these cuisines and my husband didn't really, he doesn't like, he didn't like making a fuss. He's an orthopedic surgeon. You know, it's all about being manly and eating meat. So he gave up meat at the same time that I gave up meat, but he continued eating eggs and fish. So at home he would eat vegan, but out he would eat, you know, dairy and eggs and meat. And he became progressively diabetic while we were fine, the three of us, you know? So, and then he watched uh, Forks Over Knives and, Five years ago, when I came home, he said, oh, you know what? I'm actually joining you. I'm going to go plant-based. I said, what did I say? He said, no, you didn't say anything, love. I saw a movie. Wow. We can totally relate to like 20 years ago, we went vegan and it was, it, it was strange. Like we found that right. we didn't really talk about it because even vegetarian was a little bit on the side and vegan was way out there. So we kind totally. of wouldn't really tell people. We just say we prefer to eat vegetables. And that was kind of an easier way to say without saying it. Yeah, it wasn't that easy for us, for me, because obviously I was an immigrant doctor uh, and we often had like an Indian crowd and they would really look at you if you didn't eat yogurt and dairy and Indian sweets and things like that. So then one person would ask you why you are eating the way you are. And then everybody else would feel threatened. There'd be a lot of rolling of eyes. So I wasn't very good uh, initially. I was a very angry vegan for about two, three years. And it took me a lot of time to actually I look at my friends. I'd look at my partner and think, you know, I love you guys. I don't understand how you can sit there and eat, not eat the things that I know are not good for the animal. And so that made me quite bitter. And I think it took me a lot of self um, reflection and realizing that I needed to be happy within myself if I was going to actually spread any um, happiness or actually spread any uh, message. And so it went on. And then about 10 years, um, so at the same time, roughly just before I turned vegan, I actually went through a condition. Uh, you have heard of menopause because you've had a, a podcast on menopause. Menopause is 12 months when you haven't had a period. But one in 100, in fact, there are even higher numbers, but one in 100 women become menopausal before the age of 40. It's known as premature ovarian insufficiency. And so I was 38 and I thought I was, because I was being bullied, I thought it was stress and my periods had stopped because it had always been regular. And actually I was going through all the hot flushes, the panic attacks, the anxiety. I mentioned that uh, in my story in the book, but I didn't know where to turn. I was a fully trained 16 years of OBGYN and I still didn't know where to turn for help. And that was quite difficult. And then I happened to become vegan and a lot of my symptoms actually improved and in fact went away. And I thought, you know what, I've just sort of gone past the whole thing. Um, but about 10 years ago, when I really discovered that, you know, eating plant-based or being vegan it's not just for animals. It's also so good for my health and for my patient's health. I was equal parts upset, angry, and excited. I was angry because I hadn't been taught that in medical school. I was upset because, you know, I see, I used to see about 4,000 patients a year. 
And so I had denied a lot of my patients that information because, you know, I just would tell them my story, but I wouldn't encourage them necessarily to go that way. And excited because suddenly I felt validated that everything I was doing, everything that I was feeling so energetic, all this information had already been discovered and science had already proven things. So I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I just had to apply it to my patients, to my uh, myself, and to actually, you know, go straight to the public because I did try to go to my Royal College and try and say to them, you know, let's do some modules on nutrition and lifestyle. And I got blank, no kind of wow. thing. It, I was ignored. Nice. So I thought, you know, let me just continue teaching medical students and my trainees and going to the public because, you know, people are very intelligent. They know when something sounds true, something, you know, there's a lot of misinformation there. But deep down, people do understand when they hear the logic and the science and the evidence. So that's been my sort of I don't like to use the word mission it sounds a bit, you know, zealous, but <laughs> I, I do just love everything I do, you know, the operating along with the lifestyle. And when patients ring me and say, Dr. Bajikal, I don't need you to do my hysterectomy for me, or actually I've got my periods back after having years of polycystic ovary syndrome. It's just fabulous, you know, just hearing that information just from changing the way they have started to eat. It's just fascinating. So yeah, that was my story. Wow. Brilliant. Brilliant. And I wonder like, like, cause I know like you come from a trained, you know, you're a gynecologist and you've got so many special interests and you're highly qualified in the medical sphere. And you're also kind of a, an incredible kind of leader in terms of lifestyle medicine as well as a practitioner. Like, you know, you've been eating a, a vegan plant-based diet for 20 years or so. So you've really been living it. And how do you see those worlds coming together now? Like particularly in women's health and with your interests in terms of hormones and PCOS and endometriosis and menopause and all the gamut of, you know. Yeah. yeah That's aspects a fabulous of question, health. actually, because. You see, there is no aspect of general health and no aspect of reproductive health or women's health that is not influenced by lifestyle, not a single medical condition. So whether it is, you know, endometriosis, whether it's polycystic ovary syndrome, whether it's fibroids, these are all estrogen dependent conditions, whether it is breast cancer, ovarian cancer, womb cancer for men, prostate cancer, bowel cancer for both sexes. So basically, there's no aspect that will not benefit. It's not that I don't need to do surgery. It's not that if I I don't need to do a cesarean section for somebody whose baby is not going to be able to be born vaginally. That's not the point. The point is they can be helped during pregnancy, for example, of avoiding pregnancy-induced diabetes. They can be helped with reducing their pain symptoms of endometriosis or painful periods. They can be helped with regards to their acne and their excess hair growth when it comes to polycystic ovary syndrome if they don't want to go on the pill, if they're trying for a pregnancy. So there are so many aspects. There's no aspect that doesn't get helped. But I think what has really made a difference is that I have... I have, a credib- I have credibility as an obstetrician and gynecologist for, with 35 years of experience. So, and people know that I have been doing this for a long time and that when I'm recommending these things is because I have looked into the science. I have actually done my examinations in lifestyle medicine and I'm not saying that you have to do one or the other. You know, they complement each other. They walk side by side. You know, it's not 
you don't have to choose lifestyle over surgery. If you need, happen to need surgery, if you've got cancer and you've got a big growth, say in your breast, it needs to be removed. That is the, you know, bottom line. It, you need to have chemotherapy. You may need to have chemotherapy, but you will still do very, very well. First of all, by trying to reduce your risk by eating the right foods from even when you're in your mother's stomach and your mother's eating the right foods. So, you know, genetics plays a role. Epigenetics plays a role. But even later on, it's never too late. It's never too early to eat the right foods, to live the right lifestyle. So once you understand that, that it doesn't matter, there is no shame in taking medications. There is no shame in having surgery. But if you can avoid it, hey, why not? If you can actually complement it, why not? You know, you should not do anything to the detriment. So I spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues who are actually very supportive. Uh, and three of them have, are now fully plant-based, in fact, vegan. Um, and um, so it's amazing when you hear this sort of information, they think, ah, oh, maybe I can start suggesting to my patients rather than just saying have a healthy lifestyle means nothing to anybody. When I, when I say have a healthy lifestyle, my idea of a healthy lifestyle is very different from you guys running into the sea in the cold, you know, <laughs> coming back. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do that. So everybody has a different idea. So just breaking it down for people just so that it's easy to understand and actually not making them feel guilty meeting them where they are so if you guys are going to run into the sea you might say hey Neetu, can you swim at all and i'll say yes i can but can you make sure that you're going to get me one of those children's float and then i'll come into the sea with you <laughs> or can i have you know so it's just meeting me where i am and and so if you are eating no fruits at all if i suddenly tell you to eat 13 portions that japan and canada tell you to do i'm going to run the other way is that 13 a week? 13 portions a day, a week? A day. Thir a 13 day. a day. Brilliant. So 13 a day basically is a, a big salad, maybe a soup, and four or five fruits, you know, a banana, oh, yeah, okay. an apple. Oh, so 13 so portions of fruit and vegetables, not just fruit. A portion is, is a handful. A yeah. portion is 80 grams. So it's like one pear, one apple, two or three uh, broccoli uh, florets. And I'm talking for adults. So for a child... Uh, their hand is much smaller. So you're not going to whack a big apple into their hand. You're going to put a slice of apple if they're two years old. That is a portion for them. You know, a, a little teaspoon of peas will be a portion for them. You know, two or three tablespoons of peas will be a portion for us. So it's, 13 portions is not a lot. But if I'm somebody who does it, who's scared of fruit, for example, because I think it's got sugar in it, when actually that's the that's a myth. So if I'm somebody who doesn't eat any fruit, doesn't eat any vegetables, I'm going to have to say, okay, do you think what, give me a fruit that you like. Oh, I like grapes. Okay. Do you think you could eat a bunch of grapes this week? Oh yes, I can do that. Okay. Do you like oranges? Oh, I like satsumas. Yes. So do you think you could add a satsuma next week to it? And then you build and you build and you build. And suddenly somebody turns around and says, wow, I can't do without these foods. They're amazing. They make me feel so good. And that's what you do with you know, because when you make people feel guilty or defensive, like I told you the first two, three years when I was uh, angry vegan, I used to get very upset and sometimes I'd become offensive. And, you know, family often have a habit of making you feel like that. So that didn't serve anybody. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't make people want to become better. They don't want to look at you and think. Uh, and I remember my daughter, I think, I don't know which one of it, 
I think it was a younger daughter who said, mom, I don't want to live in a commune. I want to live in the outside world. I want you to wear your high heels and your lovely dresses. So people can look and say, okay, she, so she can be a doctor or a surgeon and wear high heels and still be a vegan. She doesn't have to have her hair in dreadlocks. So, you know, it's just trying to be who you want to be and still realize, you know, because there's a lot of guilt, you know, I play some golf, for example, I've just recently started. Golf is not a great environmentally friendly game. It also keeps the community out of a very beautiful green space. Um, so I struggled a lot, but I love the game a lot. So I've had to make my peace with, a, you know, I, I'm not a perfect vegan. I realize that, you know, uh, and I, I, do I, I think it's, I think it's an ideal, like it's, it's an ideal and the nature of the world, you know, an ideal is we, we aspire or we try to reach it. So I think yes. there's no, there's no such thing as perfect. It's all about. Yeah. And I really admire that in terms of your approach to your patients, that it's not an all or nothing thing. It's kind of like no. trying to crowd out the less healthy options by yeah. including and meeting people where they're at, which I think is so inclusive as a friend, Shawnee here, who's actually uh, behind the, the, <laughs> Hi, the, the audio. <laughs> Shawnee always says uh, you'll attract more people with honey rather than vinegar. You'll, no, you'll catch, you'll oh, trap catch more, more flies. Sorry, catch more <laughs> flies. Okay, sure. Something like that. <laughs> we made a meal of that. We made a meal of that. I, I wonder, Nitu, um, just on the topic of kind of lifestyle medicines, I think I was listening to something that you were mentioning that nine days a year, typically females are, yeah. are, are, are hit with absenteeism or through work, yes. through schools, through college, through education and training due to period pain and due to just yes. the difficulties of that. I wonder if we could talk about lifestyle and how it can impact on period pain because this is something that affects so many of the population. And most, most women listening will be able to relate to that and most Correct. partners of women will go, yeah, wow, okay, painful periods. Like it seems like yes. the amount of times with you know, my wife, friends where you, where they have a hot water bottle on their tummy and their line curled up Correct. and really, you know, so I think, yeah. Yeah. So painful periods, basically, if you think about it, um, they, they're divided into two types. One, which is known as primary dysmenorrhea. Doctors love complicated words, but basically <laughs> it's where you don't have a cause. Uh, you know, you don't have endometriosis, for example, causing the painful periods, or you don't have big fibroids that are pressing in the wrong place and causing pain. So these are usually, um, you know, people who menstruate, they have pain starting a day before or on the day of the period, they have cramps. And this is because, you know, the lining of the womb sheds every month. The reason it sheds every month uh, tends to be because you've released an egg a couple of weeks before, the body is expecting to uh, have a pregnancy, you know, egg meets sperm and it's all lovely. And then it settles down in the uterus and a pregnancy is supposed to happen. Now, when that doesn't happen, the lining gets shed and that's a period when the lining gets shed and the, the lining comes away there is blood but there is also cells and mucus and debris and all that and so it releases some chemicals called prostaglandins and these prostaglandins can cause nausea in some can cause vomiting in some can cause diarrhea for others can cause constipation in some it can cause pain in others and it can cause heavy bleeding in others and so those prostaglandins really need to be countered and that's where i'm going to talk to you a little bit about how lifestyle can help 
And but I can see you want to ask a question. I'm twitching, I'm twisting, twitching. Thanks, you too. Uh, Presto, so, so you're saying that the lining, so how I understand the lining is it's like, it's literally like the layer of kind of mucus that goes around the, you know, the womb. And prostaglandins yes. are part of that lining. And then when they, yes. when, when your period happens, pain happens because of that. Yes. So prostaglandins get released because as the lining breaks down, it's not a layer of mucus. It's, a, it's actually a, a lining a physical, of cells. Okay. Cells, yes. And so it builds up based on the hormones. The estrogen uh, starts thickening it, then progesterone starts building it up, and then there is no pregnancy, and the body says, you know what, let's get rid of this, and let's start all over again in the eternal hope that there'll be another pregnancy next month. So if you think back 100 years or 150 years, most women would die by 30, 35, 40, or they would die in childbirth. Okay, so they would start their periods at about age 13 or 14, and they would have their periods, have a period, probably get pregnant, you know, at the age of 14 or 15. If they were lucky to survive it, the the child would be uh, nursed for two, three, four, five years, depending on how long they could nurse, and then they'd get pregnant again. And again, if they were lucky to survive it, they would have had no periods all this time and they would have another baby. And so either they'd be pregnant or lactating, pregnant or lactating, and they would have 10, 15 children if they were lucky to survive. So basically they would have eight or nine or 10 periods in their lifetime. Oh my you understand? word. That's now can, can I, we can, have, can I, oh, yes. sorry. I, I'm just wondering like, are there any other mammals that menstruate like that? Cause we're a mammal, like in kind yes. of gorillas and in chimpanzees, do they menstruate too? Is the so same kind of there process? Are some, yes, there are the big mammals will menstruate, uh, but there are others like dogs and cats will often absorb the, the lining themselves and you'll not see any evidence of their, menstrual cycle but the elephant shrew actually you know the little mouse-like creature has regular menstrual cycles like us so you have this fascinating uh, situation but if you think we have evolved to reproduce and then die that's the evolution we are animals at the end of the day the fact that we are living into our 80s 90s into our hundreds is a miracle from hand washing clean water and vaccinations. That is the, the three main reasons why humans are living that much longer. But now, when because we have one, we don't want to have 10, 15 children. So if we are going to have zero, one, two, three, five children, you're going to have anywhere between 350 to 500 cycles, menstrual cycles or menstrual periods in your lifetime. So you can see why there are there are so many conditions anemia you know one in five women will have low iron levels because of heavy periods heavy periods painful periods endometriosis ovarian cysts ovarian problems all these come from having lots and lots of periods you know that does not mean we start having uh, lots more children but all i'm saying is that is how we have evolved so with painful periods you can have no cause and so the prostaglandins are being released these chemical pain producing chemicals and so lifestyle and diet and exercise and tablets and ginger can make a big difference and then you have something called secondary dysmenorrhea so you have the primary dysmenorrhea where there's no pathology which means there's no medical reason why you're having that pain and then you have the secondary which means that you may have fibroids you may have endometriosis you may have pelvic inflammatory disease and you may have had no pain. Um, you may have had some pain as a teenager. Then you had your children, you're fine. And then you hit your mid thirties, forties and your periods start becoming more painful and you develop conditions which are inflammatory conditions like say endometriosis or adenomyosis. 
So your periods get, become very painful and the pain may start several days before the onset of the period and then continues through the period. So as a doctor, you have to take all these history very nicely because the moment you take a detailed clinical history and the person, that's why I always tell my patients, do your homework before you come. So that because it's quite scary sitting in a doctor's chair, you forget everything. So sometimes writing it all down so that you know if you have previous medical notes, if you have drug allergies, if you've been taking medications, if you've been taking supplements, tell the doctor and the doctor should give you that time so that they can help be a detective and help you in the right direction. Even on that, are there good apps to track it? Like, because I think, like I see yes. my wife, she tracks her cycle and she tracks Correct. a few things. But like if there was an app that tracked it, is there one that you know of that's good so there are apps that anyone. are free. I like free things. Yeah, free uh, so things are great. you can either just write it down in your diary or if you have a smartphone, like most people do, uh, you have like apps like Flow and Clue. These are great apps that allow you to record. And every person, every person who starts menstruating. So if you start men- starting your periods at the age of eight or 10 or 12 or 15, it doesn't matter when you start. You start keeping a record of your cycles every month because you will be shocked. You will be shocked every day. I will get at least one patient who thinks it's normal not to have regular periods. It is not normal to miss periods, except if you're right in the first year of starting a period uh, or your um, uh, menstruation or towards the end as you're approaching perimenopause and menopause, or if you, of course, you're pregnant. But generally, if you're on um, hormonal contraception, you don't need to have periods. But anybody who's not having regular periods, you have to think, could they be having an eating disorder? Are they exercising too much? Do they have this condition of polycystic ovary syndrome? You know, are they pregnant? <laughs> yeah. Can I, go. can I ask one question, Nidhi? I was you just going to ask you, any you, number of questions. Yeah, th- thanks. You're I'm, wonderful. I'm Thank this. you, this you. Is so much fun. This. So really, so, so one of the main things, the main reasons, just to bring it back, is that like, we're having having so many more periods like well yes people with female genitalia are having far more periods and that's one of the main reasons on top of how we're living our lives and the stress and what we're eating and all the various things so so that's kind of part of it and i remember we had a great conversation with a lady who she kind of referred to your the menstrual cycle as the fifth vital sign and i thought that was that was an incredible she said there's so much information within that like whether it's painful or how regular it is and all these various things so yeah um, so so the american college of pediatrics uh, uh, basically met about 10 years ago and then they reconvened, I think, in 2018. And they have designated that period should be de- designated as the fifth vital sign. Now, I don't know if you know what vital signs are, but I'll just mention it to uh, the public who are listening. Um, so there are four things. You know, when you go into a hospital, the nurse or the doctor will check your blood pressure, your respiration, your temperature and your heart rate. Okay, so these are known as vital signs to tell us, do you have a temperature? Is your heart beating faster? Is your blood pressure very high? Is your blood pressure very low? Are you breathing very quickly? Are you breathing very slowly? Basically, are you dying? Are you going to survive? Yes. (laughs) So those are vital signs. Now, it is quite scary that we are not checking the the history of periods. We just check to see whether somebody's pregnant or not. Could they be pregnant? Let's do a pregnancy test if they're not pregnant. Otherwise, we'll get sued because we're going to operate on somebody who's pregnant and we don't know that they're pregnant. No, periods are so important because if you're missing periods, it could be a sign of 
mental health issues. It could be a sign of polycystic ovary syndrome. You could be menopausal. You could be pregnant. You could be having uh, eating disorders. You could be exercising too much. So if you have a broken leg and you don't take this history of what your periods are, you are, as a doctor, you're going to miss the entire root cause as to why somebody has come to you with a broken wrist or with a fractured uh, hip, simply because you haven't spent that time understanding that periods are critical, are essential. If you're not on hormonal medication, you need to be having monthly periods between 24 and 35 days. So it is a vital sign. So, so important. This no, has no, been- Michael, okay. next. Your turn next. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Lee. You're brilliant. I'm loving this. <laughs> uh, I, I remember reading the China study and yes. the age with which um, women were getting their first period was somewhere between 15 and 18 versus yeah. in Western society, it was yeah. generally somewhere between 11 and 13. And part yeah. of the reason was diet and lifestyle factors. And I yes. just thought it was fascinating that in an age where often people are trying to reduce the incidence of female pregnancies, this was an amazing piece of data that was being collected. I just wonder if yeah. you could talk about that because yeah. I have a young the, the, daughter. The, we veered away from the prostaglandins. We'll come back to that. Oh, yeah, we'll come back to that. Sorry. Yeah, we're going yeah, off topic. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but um, what? Yeah, you went way off topic. This, <laughs> no, no, it's not. This is all part of the, that's the beauty about what I do is that it's just so fascinating that, you know, 40 years oh, later. There's, there's so many bits, like there really is. Like it's, it's, it's just it's, fascinating. You're yeah, a detective. You're a detective. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, and also hopefully, you know, Sherlock somebody Nitu. who can. <laughs> shrink me too. <laughs> or, yeah. So, um, no, what I was saying is uh, when you were asking about the China study, there are two ways of looking at why some, uh, why uh, women are having their periods, you know, coming at an earlier age. One is because of better nutrition, actually. So, you know, previously there was a lot of malnourishment and when you are better nourished, you tend to be uh, having a, a, a better position, nature says, ah, she can start trying to have a pregnancy. You understand? So when you're better nourished, your reproductive system is sort of getting ready. If you're in a famine, boom, your periods go away because nature says, if I'm going to make her pregnant, not only is she going to die, the baby's going to probably do very badly as well. So nature has all these defense mechanisms. So one of the reasons of starting your periods a bit earlier is because of better nutrition. So women, girls tend to be taller, they're better built. So that's true. The second thing, of course, is the higher intake of animal derived foods. So we have animal derived foods like dairy and meat and all do tend to contain more mammalian estrogen, more mammalian hormones by mammals. We are mammals. Okay. So when you have cows and uh, when you're eating beef or dairy, these do contain, however small amount, they're still in a larger amount because these animals are big, right? They're big compared to somebody who's, you know, 30, 40 kilos at that age. So when you're, you know, giving them a lot of these uh, products that are meant for baby calves and things, you have these excess amounts of estrogen in the body, not soya. Don't confuse that with soya or chickpeas. These are mammalian estrogens that then start misbehaving and triggering different things like growth hormone and insulin-like growth factors. All these things will then start taking, uh, you know, sort of root in the body and causing more problems, whether it is with period issues or starting your periods early. So it's very, very complicated, but nutrition 
better nutrition is the main reason. And then you, of course, have the typical Western diet that may be contributing a little bit. And then, of course, there are theories where, you know, people say there's so much of um, the uh, hormone, the pill hormone in water that that may be contributing. Those are all they're not really very well substantiated. So we do know that, yes, the time for menarche, which is the first time you start your period, is shifting slightly earlier and slightly earlier. Can we do anything very much about it? Probably not. Uh, but when you are heavier, you're making more estrogen, and that then triggers a lot of things as well. So coming back to, oh, yes, you've got your hand up. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I was going to just bring it back to the pain, painful periods, because yes. we now yes. understand lots of the reasons why they could possibly be happening. I'm sure yeah, there's lots of people listening and there's lots of people in my life and in Stephen's life yeah. who I would love to kind of, could you talk about what, like if someone comes in at painful periods, yeah. what are basic, simple things that anyone listening can go, oh my God, yeah. I suffer with painful periods. Like, what should I do? Yes. So first of all, taking a very detailed history. So you know that you're not really thinking of the more serious conditions because they can also occur at a younger age. So in some situations, I will recommend that my young patient has a pelvic ultrasound scan uh, so that they can we can look for other conditions um, and do simple blood tests, a full blood count, which looks at your iron levels and your iron stores. Those are very important because women often underplay or they don't realize how heavy their periods are and then you suddenly find they've got very low iron levels. So these are very simple tests that your family doctor can do. Okay. But if it is just your starting pain on the first day or just the day before, and it lasts for a couple of days, but it stops you from going to school, you're missing school, or when you're in at university, you're not able to focus on the lecture, then that needs some attention. What can one do for oneself? So first of all, let's look at exercise. So the studies for exercise are not very strong, but what studies are available show that if you exercise for at least 45 minutes, three times a week, whatever exercise you choose, whether it's aerobic or strength training or whatever you may do, three times a week or 45 minutes was found in, in many studies to reduce the incidence of period pain. Why does it do that? Remember the prostaglandins I mentioned? Those chemicals get washed away from the system in the bloodstream. So then the, that gets diluted. So when that gets diluted, the pain gets better. Same thing with a hot water bottle or a cold water bottle. What does it do? It washes away these prostaglandins. So again, somebody might use a hot water bottle because it then dilates the blood vessels and washes these prostaglandins away. So you could exercise, you could use a hot water bottle, you could use one of those microwavable bead-like things that you can stick in the microwave and then stick it on your, on your tummy, making sure it's not too hot. Even the hot water bottle shouldn't be too hot. You don't want to get burns. So that is the second thing you can do. You, the next thing that you can do is have uh, a diet that is very rich in plants. Why? Because plants, so fruits, vegetables, beans, chickpeas, green peas, soya, herbs, turmeric, ginger, uh, spices, nuts and seeds, potatoes, sweet potatoes, all these which are part of a whole food plant-based diet are anti-inflammatory. So they wash away these chemicals, these prostaglandins that can cause different actions in different tissues, but in the uterus are causing pain. When you eat foods like this, green leafy vegetables, they dilate the blood vessels the same way they help your heart from having a heart, prevent you from having a heart attack. It's the same thing. Your uterus is having mini heart attacks when it's cramping. So you want to be 
really eating these colorful, vibrant fruits and vegetables and spices and things that will allow these prostaglandins to die down. Because when you eat inflammatory foods, so when you have vegan uh, cakes and biscuits and, and pizzas or, you know, a steak or sausages or eggs and things like that, they create inflammation. When you have lots of white bread and, you know, white sugar rich foods, they're all fine as occasional treats. So the word, important word there is treats, you know, I love a pizza, a vegan pizza, but it needs to be, if I eat it every day, I think it will show on my skin, on my, you know, you want to eat foods that bring you joy as well as health. So the same thing, a whole food plant-based diet. There are some studies, a study by Dr. Neil Barnard showed that when you do a low fat whole food plant-based diet, then that can even be more beneficial. I am not a great fan of low fat, uh, basically because I think avocado avocados, nuts and seeds and tofu are such healthy foods that asking women who need fat to have good reproductive hormones, I'm not completely, you know, it, those are, that's very individualized. Uh, but he did find in his trial a low fat whole food plant based diet had a very good impact in reducing pain. And is that is that more like when he's saying low fat, is that not cutting out processed oils like because, no, you know, no. more. No, it's cutting out avocados and things like that, even though they're high yes. in monosaturated yes. poly, yes. polyunsaturated. But, well. you know, but it was a very, very good trial. Don't get me wrong. And it will work. So if somebody is starting out with just a whole food plant based diet and not seeing enough changes, they may want to see are they having so much of extra fat and what happens if they cut it down? A whole food plant-based diet also minimizes. So it doesn't like alcohol. It doesn't like uh, caffeine because both those can disturb the hormonal rhythm and alcohol, you know, is a class one carcinogen. So you, a whole food plant-based diet doesn't rely heavily on those. Similarly, a whole food plant-based diet tries to minimize salt, oil, sugar, simply because they are not necessarily, they're not needed in your diet. You know, mm. extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil is great if you need, if you're a child, if you need to put on weight. But for most people, 75% of the world's population, of the UK population, are, <clears throat> I'm sure it's the same thing in Ireland, are carrying excess weight. So one tablespoon of oil is 120 calories. You can eat a lovely baked potato with some, uh, you know, hummus and, and salad for a little bit extra that so you know are you going to choose a tablespoon of olive oil versus a lovely jacket potato with baked beans mm, you know for me it's a no contest uh, mm, so me too, it's, me it's, too. yeah it's, it's just understanding that oil is not a there's nothing scary about oil salt and sugar but you use them as condiments use them as flavorings i am a south indian i love coconut oil <clears throat> but if i ate a lot of coconut oil is 100 percent saturated fat so what i want to do is put a few drops on my dishes so that I get the aroma of it, but I'd rather use the whole coconut. Same thing with, um, you know, mustard oil or any oil. You want to use them as seasonings. You put some salt on your, like Dr. Clapper says, just, you know, squirt a little bit of salt onto your food and you get that hit of the salt. Maybe use lemon and things like that and mango powder. I don't know if you know the Indian spices, amchur and, um, you know, anardana, pomegranate powder, and mango powder. These are all delicious. When I do my cooking classes, I actually show how people can reduce their salt, how they can cook without oil. I have a lot of oil-free recipes on my website as well. Jeez, Nito, you're Nito, brilliant. Nito. Please, please, can I just ask one thing? Do you mind? 
Go for it, David. Okay, okay. He's I was just going to say, so, so, but it was, it was coming back to this idea that, okay, so we, we previously, 150 years ago, women might have had only 10 to 15 periods, whereas now the average yes. woman is having about 300 periods. And that yes. brings me back to the idea that, okay, if we have less periods, so for example, if someone, and lots of, lots of you know, my friends and, and people in my life, uh, females in my life have, have taken like a contraceptive, a hormonal contraceptive for Correct. like their 20s or maybe from the age yeah. of 16 to 30 and then maybe they kind of come off it. And I'm just wondering, yeah. does that reduce, you know, period? Like, because yeah. I know there's like, there's so many different views. It's like in terms of hormonal contraception, there's loads of people that are so for it and then other people, and there's pros and cons of all these. And I'd love to know your, your opinion yeah. as a gynecologist. So, it's all very well to have opinions, but really the only thing I'm interested in is the science. I'm not interested in, in, in opinions. I don't want people to say, I think the earth is flat, not interested. I want the fact that the earth is round and I know that the earth is round because science has proven that. So it, it's same thing with the hormonal contraceptive pill. I'll tell you a little story if we have a couple of minutes. Oh, so basically... To. <laughs> the hormonal contraceptive pill came out in the 1960s uh, and it was very interesting because the original research showed had the pill the estrogen and progesterone which is produced in our body from um, you know uh, cholesterol uh, these uh, are the artificial versions of estrogen and progesterone which when they're in the right combination can be pretty much 99 point whatever percent effective as a hormonal contraceptive so the research was done without women needing to have periods and so in the 1960s, at the same time, termination of pregnancy was made legal. And so it was a time when Richard Nixon was running, I think, for his presidentship, second time round. And the sanitary towel industry said, whoa, we can't have, first of all, women are going to go around being on the pill, then they're not going to have periods. So we're going to go out of business. Then when they, if they do get pregnant, they can have a termination. That is not good. Women in those days, remember, were second-class citizens, right? So there had to be a lot of appealing to the Pope, and finally the pill was sanctioned. But it was sanctioned with a monthly break. Now that makes very little sense because all the contraceptives that have come out since then, the hormonal contraception, whether somebody's on the progesterone-only pill, whether they're on a progesterone uh, coil, they you're designed to not bleed on it because there's no medical reason to have a withdrawal bleed when you have the right amount of hormones in your body, the estrogen and the progesterone. So really what women should do is if they're going to be on the contraceptive pill, they take it back to back and have a break when they feel like, if they need to. Some women want to have a break every month that's fine others like when you have endometriosis or if you have other conditions or you just for convenience you're an athlete or whatever you take it back to back you may have premenstrual symptoms every time you stop the pill the hormone levels drop and boom that one week is hell and then you're trying to bring those hormones back again so really the pill should be taken back to back without a break now if you take the pill the contraceptive pill the combined contraceptive pill estrogen and progesterone for at least four years or five years you have listen to this very carefully you have your risk of ovarian cancer bowel cancer womb cancer you don't increase the risk you reduce the risk and even when your friend stops them the pill in at the age of 25 that protection is still there lifelong and the longer you take it the more the protection because you know you're not having we won't go into the the science of it but basically that is 
proven without doubt. What the pill can do, however, is it can increase your risk of breast cancer slightly if you take it for longer than 12 years, although the pill is very safe to take until, the men until you're menopausal. And that risk of breast cancer disappears as soon as you stop the pill. Okay, so there are lots and lots of non-contraceptive benefits. Girls who can't go to school, who have so much of pain and they've done all the lifestyle things or they don't know about the lifestyle things, they will benefit hugely from taking the pill, taking it back to back. They can do their GCSE exams. They can you know, run a marathon. They can win the Olympics, whatever needs to be done. So if you don't want to take it, and it's also very effective contraception, don't forget that an unwanted pregnancy can be a real problem. Not everybody wants to have a termination. Not everybody can have a termination. And also in many cultures, it's not okay to get pregnant when you're not married. Yeah. So it's okay if I'm in a relationship where I'm able to say, you know what, I can do the natural methods. I can, if I get pregnant with a 20% failure rate, it's not the end of the world for me. But for a lot of people, it is the end of the world. You know, we don't have the time, but I can tell you some real horror stories from India, real horror stories that will make you cry. So when people say that the pill is all bad, for me, that's not scientific. If you don't want to take it, that's not a problem, but you need to know the science. Why does it help? How does it help? It helps with painful periods. It helps with heavy periods. It helps to prevent anemia. It can be a treatment for, uh, it's a first line treatment for the condition of PCOS. It's a first line treatment for endometriosis for those who need it. So it's, you really have to understand that it's fine if you don't want to take it, but there is a medical reason when sometimes, and there's no shame in taking it if you have to, but you don't have to have a break every month. And also, you know, it's, it's just little things like this that really I spend a lot of time myth busting because of this, because I just feel that I don't want to deny that person who needs this because she's been told that it's so bad for you. It, it gives you conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome that can't be further than the truth, can't give you any conditions. You understand? So wow, yeah. once you understand that, then yes, of course, if you can do lifestyle and, you know, so as I said, Use a hot water bottle, exercise three times a week, eat a whole food plant-based diet, you know, have ginger. We didn't talk about ginger, but ginger works just like Nurofen. You know, you've heard about um, Nurofen, Brufen. They are anti-prostaglandins. Remember that pain-producing uh, yeah, chemical prostaglandin? prostaglandin? Yeah, your something. Room. So if that is the enemy, you have a soldier. The soldier is uh, called anti-prostaglandin. And anti-prostaglandins are present in ginger powder, in ginger, wow. so fresh ginger in your diet regularly. Ginger tea is very helpful for uh, nausea of periods, nausea of chemotherapy, nausea of pregnancy. Okay, but it's also randomized trials in groups of, uh, I think, Iranian girls showed that taking a third of a teaspoon, now that's a pinch, a pinch of ginger powder three times a day in the first four days of your Can period. Can I ask yeah. one question? Well, sorry, sorry yeah. to cut you off there. Sarah, Sarah was asking, uh, Sarah's here beside us, and she was saying that does taking the pill, though, sometimes cover up some of these conditions which might be underneath it and kind of almost like mask the root cause of an issue? Is uh, that, or is that, what is the argument in terms of that? No. When, what do you mean by mask? I mean, you know, it's not as if somebody is going to go around. If you're needing it for contraception, you're taking it for contraception. If you're needing it for for uh, acne or increased hair growth, you're taking it. Yes, or maybe the root or, cause. Or maybe it was just that, um, like, say, for example, like, obviously it's used as a contraception, but in some cases, um, women are 
having such painful periods that they go on the pill and they're missing out on the vital sign as in that the you know your your menstrual cycle is your fifth vital sign and yes. if you're kind of covering it up with by taking the pill which is great it's wonderful but it might be missing out on that information because there could be an underlying condition that you might kind of No but you're not going up. on the pill without having had the necessary investigations. Okay, if you're going you. on the pill because you have no problems with your periods, but you just don't want to get pregnant, you can go on the pill. You have nothing else going on in your life, but you cannot afford to get pregnant because you want to get a A star, you want to uh, get the gold medal in university, you want to get you know the Beijing Olympics, I don't know, whatever you want to do, or you just can't afford to get pregnant. Then, and you have nothing else going on with you, you can be on the pill. But if you're having painful periods, if you're having heavy periods, if you're having acne, if you're missing your periods, you're not supposed to go on the pill without having those things checked out. Yeah, very good. You understand? Thank you. Excellent clarification. And then also coming off the pill within six weeks, people say, oh, it takes months and years to wash it off. It doesn't. Because the reason you have to take the pill every day, if you don't take the pill every day, you can either get pregnant or you start bleeding. The pill washes out of your system very quickly. So in six weeks of stopping or eight weeks, you can then have your tests. So it all depends on why you're taking something. It's That is the important thing. When you say covering up, Yes, if you're just blindly going on medications by getting them online without actually doing your due diligence as to why you're needing the pill. What is the reason you're going on the pill? You understand? That's very good. Yeah, that's yeah, a huge difference. Thank you. I, I, yeah. I wonder, like, I'd love to talk to you about, we, we kind of have explore the topic of menopause and it's fascinating I didn't we realize love I love that topic love so much it. and I think I love my next book is on menopause oh yes. I, like I'm I really I'm want to read so it. into like honestly I am dying to buy uh, it and I really feel as a society we need to gather around our women more and this is an important rite of passage for women and they need to be supported in it and I just wonder like we've talked extensively on the topic of HRT I just wonder as an alternative, is there much lifestyle measures that people can apply? Because based on yes. my, my limited understanding, the menopause is beyond it being 12 months without a period. Um, it's also it's a hormone deficiency that it's something that it's very difficult for the body to create these hormones. And I just wonder, is there much lifestyle factors that people can apply to to reduce the symptoms yeah. of because we, we certainly yes. had we had a wonderful conversation with a doctor who's incredible a couple of them and they were both very much pro HRT and they had wonderful arguments for it and I wonder do you sit in that camp or what's your views on it I sit in no camp just like I don't sit in the pill camp or the scientific the yeah, pill you camp. just follow it's science all individualized Evidence. science okay yeah. so, individualized great Okay, it's all down to the individual and looking at the science because it just because something is good for you doesn't mean it's right for you. So, uh, you know, so that's important. But lifestyle, always good for you, always. So it doesn't matter. I have lots of patients who take HRT and lots of patients who don't take HRT. What there is very little discussion is if you're under the age of 40, then you should, as a doctor, be strongly advising your patient to take hormone replacement because that is not acceptable. You have premature ovarian insufficiency. But the range of age between of stopping your periods or menopause is 45 to 55, okay? So then it becomes a choice. And the important thing is to have a 
proper conversation with the person sitting in front of you. What can I do, doctor, to help my lifestyle? What can I do? Should I, if I want to avoid HRT, but I want HRT, but I also want to avoid things like breast cancer. I want to avoid dementia in the future. All the things that plague women as we get older, right? So that is why you want to start as early as possible. When you're a child, when you're in your mother's stomach, when you are a teenager, when you are a woman, young woman, why? Because you want to be bringing in beans into your life. You want to be bringing in legumes into your life, beans, peas, lentils. You must have at least two to four portions of soya. Soya has got plant estrogens, which do not behave like mammalian estrogens. They reduce your breast cancer risk. They reduce hot flushes. They reduce, uh, Dr. Neil Bernard did a beautiful study, a randomized trial showing just a handful of edamame beans, you know, the green beans. They actually cut hot flushes by 84%. If a drug did that, it would be wow. hitting the, the market. Okay. Just half a cup or a handful of edamame beans every single day for 12 weeks cut moderate to severe hot flushes by 84 percent that is astounding so i'll just give you an example of what i would have i have is i have a cup of soya milk in my porridge with a couple of tablespoons of flaxseed powder flaxseed powder have lignans which are great for omegas but also for uh, preventing reducing risk of breast cancer but they also have phytoestrogens or plant estrogens that that soya has so you want to have a couple of tablespoons. It reduces prostate cancer, you know? So you want to understand reproduction does not get affected for men or women, except possibly positively when you intake soya. So I have a cup of soy milk in the morning. I will have edamame beans in my salad. I'll have, you know, a block of tofu or a tofu stir fry or a tempeh burger. So I tend to have between three to four portions because I'm quite active as a person. Uh, most people will, the important thing is not to eat 30 portions of soya because you don't want to not eat your fruits and your vegetables and your nuts and your seeds and your uh, potatoes and your sweet potatoes and your brown rice and quinoa and things. So you want to have a very colorful, diverse diet, but a cup of soy milk, a small cup of uh, soy yogurt with some, uh, you know, mango and blueberries and dark chocolate drizzled on it, you know, what's not to like. <laughs> so it's just understanding that you can start early with diet. So we know that those who follow a typical Western diet, that means a diet high in animal saturated fat, tend to have 85% more hot flushes compared to those living in Southeast Asian countries, such as Japan and things, because they have a lot more of this unfermented and minimally processed soy products. Okay. So we know that, and they eat more, a lot of plants. So they eat a lot of vegetables, green leafy vegetables and things like that. So the more you eat your whole grains, your legumes, your fruits, your vegetables, uh, when you carry less weight, so the heavier you are, the more weight you carry, the worse are your hot flushes. So we know that on a typical Western diet, you tend to be carrying more fat and tend to be carrying more uh, body weight. So you tend to, it forms like a thermoregulator. So it traps all the heat. So you have these hot flushes, which is the commonest menopausal symptom. So diet starts very early. You don't wait. Well, if you haven't heard of it, you know, and somebody is listening and they're 51 or 55, it's never too late to start. But if you're a 20 year old listening to this wonderful podcast by the beautiful twins, then you are going to want to start eating this way earlier. You know, you don't want to be doing fad diets of keto, paleo and things like that, which are high in, you can do a plant-based 
uh, keto as well. But what I'm trying to say is that you're trying to stay away from inflammatory foods because same thing in menopause, you want to eat foods that are rich in micronutrient, which are calorie light, but nutrient dense. So you, you know, because a lot of women, as they get older, they find they're carrying more weight. So weight loss is, a, is something that all women want to aspire for as they always complain. And that's because, you know, you start drinking more alcohol, even drinking a single glass of um, um, uh, wine or alcohol will increase your breast cancer risk by 12%. And for every three uh, glasses or three units, you increase your breast cancer risk even more, especially if you're menopausal. So there is no health benefits when you are, you know, drinking a lot of alcohol, eating a lot of animal foods, eating a lot of ultra processed foods where they don't resemble the whole plant foods at all. If you don't exercise, you know, you need to eat your mushrooms. You need to be doing all these things so that you can actually get the right um, lifestyle in place, sleep, stress, these things have to be addressed. And yes, if that is not helping you enough, or you're really struggling with a poor quality of life, of course, hormone replacement is definitely. But remember, a lot of people, one in seven of us will get a diagnosis of breast cancer. You can't have hormone replacement therapy with that. So you do want to be able to educate people on all the things they can empower themselves with. And then yes, medicine is always there. You know, there is nothing to be ashamed if you want to take HRT, but some people just don't want to do it. Don't uh, want and to take say it. For, and I, say, for I example, think, can I go? I, I think you mentioned I, I, that, I, I, and I, I could be misquoting this, but something like in the UK, it's one in seven are typically females yeah. are touched with breast cancer versus in China or Japan, I believe it was, where it was one in a thousand. So yes. it's a huge difference. And yes. it was largely down to diet and lifestyle, one of yes. the contributing factors. Yes. And, there was, there, and there was two things I wanted to make a comment. One was about, you mentioned wine and like wine and its risk towards breast cancer. Yet like there's so many myths out there which you read and these kind of urban legends. Oh my God, a glass of wine. Well, it's full of phytonutrients. Like it's so good for me, you know? And the same way dark chocolate and red wine like they go hand in hand they're my medicine it's mommy's medicine you hear so much of these myths yet when you quote research that kind of says quite the opposite it's kind of you know it's it's kind of frustrating so alcohol is responsible for at least seven cancers smoking is responsible for at least 13 probably 14 cancers uh, don't forget that i belong to that generation where cigarette smoking was okay we didn't doctors used to smoke uh, and so we didn't tell our patients we knew long ago uh, and you know still didn't tell people the dangers of smoking the same thing with alcohol these are all industry driven uh, situations. So, you know, it's fine when you have, even I like a glass of wine occasionally, you know, um, and you can have it as a celebrity occasion. That's very different. If you want to have it, there's still no health benefit. Do not con yourself. There's anything great about having a glass of wine or eating a steak. No, you're doing those things because you want to, not because they're good for you. Mm. Okay. There's a big difference. It's a big difference. So when my patients say, oh, you know, I've been really naughty and I've eaten a piece of chocolate cake. No, all you have to say is I don't want to rather than I shouldn't. When you, because then you are in control. When you say, I don't want that glass of wine. I don't want that chocolate cake. Then you are in control. And today I want to have that glass of wine. You're in control again. 
Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, can I bring it back to menopause and HRT? Because I, like, I just, yes. I think this is such an interesting thing. Say, for example, there's an alternative reality and Neetu has an identical twin sister. And Neetu's identical twin sister has at 20 years of being a plant-based legend who's an ex-runner, who's like super educated and eaten, a re- done so many of the Sleeps good things. Sleeps well, avoids stress. Sleeps well, avoids stress, does all these things. But yet here she is, she's 51. She's, she's now menopausal. And she's struggling. She's still like, even in spite of eating three portions of dairy, she's kind of feeling... Three portions of soy. Three portions of soy, sorry, three portions of soy. She's struggling with kind of like her sleep or her confidence is changing. And now she's 55 and she's kind of going, oh, she's losing. She's got like brain fog and all sorts of things. Would you then say to her like, well, why wouldn't you get HRT? Like, or what would you... Yeah, of course. I wouldn't wait for her to be 55. But what I would say to people is be very wary of uh, supplements. You know, there are so many supplements out in the market that are not proven, that can actually cause damage. They can interact with various drugs. So you do have to be aware because I see women, they bring out 10, 15 bottles of various things that they're taking, including soy, isoflavones, which are all, there's nothing natural when it goes into a tablet. Okay, so anybody tells you, oh, but Dr. Bajakal, that is a very natural thing. My doctor prescribed me this HRT or or prescribe me the supplement instead of HRT because it's very natural. No, even the standardized HRT available in the UK and all over the world is body identical. It is natural, but it is in the form of a tablet. So you have to be aware of that. So when people pop these pills, uh, thinking that they're taking something natural, no. Natural comes when you're eating the turmeric root, when you're having the turmeric powder, not when you're having a concoction that has been compressed into a tablet because it's got my name on top of it and I'm selling it to you. So generally speaking, you have to remember, try to move more towards the whole foods. So have the soya, have the olives, have the coconut, if you're going to eat those sort of foods, rather than having something that is compressed or ultra processed uh, into those sort of things that you don't recognize very much. And that goes for supplements. There are some supplements, of course, you have to take vitamin D, you know, uh, algae derived omega-3, you have to take vitamin B12. Those are things, especially after the age of 50, you need those. Your body is not making enough of that. Or if you have conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome, you may have to take those, uh, you should be taking those supplements. And and even even on that topic of supplements, there's uh, like, I know personally, like we take B12 and D3 and a couple of other things. But I wonder, like, like I see my wife, she sometimes takes iron, I think it is, and sometimes take folic acid or she kind of like goes in and out of taking a few little things. And I just wondered in terms of supplementation, what would you recommend to any woman listening? Yeah. So iron and folic acid are great if you're menstruating and if you have heavy periods and you're blood levels have shown to be on the lower side, you do need to get that addressed, whether you take tablets or whether you have surgery because there is a polyp or a fibroid or whatever, but iron is fine. Iron does not need to be taken in women and in men who are not, so women who are not menstruating and men generally will have high levels of iron if they are having low levels of iron, there has, are they bleeding from their back passage? Do they have some you know, gastrointestinal polyps and bowel cancer and hemorrhoids or whatever they may be having? So it's really important that when you take supplements, you've got to ask yourself, what are you taking? Why are you taking it? Vitamin D is not really available in foods. So, you know, it's minuscule amounts in mushrooms. If you uh, make them sit in the sunshine for a couple of hours, there's minuscule amounts in in eggs, they're not going to build your uh, vitamin D levels. You know, you need sunshine. 
you know, properly in, in Canary Islands or wherever, but you need a supplement, especially in the winter months, because vitamin D is not a vitamin, it's a hormone. I bet you didn't know that. Wow. No, I never heard that. <laughs> but, but, I like that's, that. That, that's the one thing I'm so interested. Like in women's health, there seems to be so many more hormones. Like it seems like the endocrine system is your hormone system. And like, I'm so aware of hormones. They have such an yeah, important hormones role. Hormones are chemical messengers. They're basically chemical messengers. Uh, endocrine system is our number of glands that are present all over the pituitary gland, the hypothalamus, the thyroid gland. So these glands produce hormones which are chemical messengers which then go and work on distant organs on the ovaries on the uterus on the breasts it's like magic and so they then go to these places and do their uh, action but you know the reason i chose obsengaini is because it's got this fantastic mix of medicine um, you know medical stuff medicine surgery because you know when you operate it's just fascinating when you actually make a difference and there's also psychology involved in it so that is a perfect speciality as far as i was concerned and it broke my heart when i first came to this country 30 years ago when i saw just men in the speciality there were hardly any women you know because it's a very acute very um difficult speciality you have you know i've had 35 years of sleepless nights you can see my dark circles my sleep has been wrecked for the rest of my life <laughs> you know but it's so wonderful, everything about OBS and Gaini, whether it's the endocrine system, whether it's the psychological aspect of it, whether it is delivering babies, whether it is, you know, stopping somebody from bleeding, whether it's operating, you know, doing complex surgery in, in the operating theater. It's just such a beautiful mix that I can't think of many specialities that actually bring this together. Uh, and that's why I love it when men and women and, you know, anybody listening would say, oh, I would like to be an uh, OBGYN. I would say you will never be disappointed. Yeah, can I ask one final question? And this is out of you my can. own curiosity and it's quite a stupid one, but I'm just, there's this tiny little part stupid. of my mind that I, I was scrolling on social media recently and I saw a thing about social the male. Is true. Oh, social true. media is always it's true. Oh, but I saw a thing about the male contraception pill was almost yeah. coming. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. Oh my God. And then in my head, I was going, would that actually work? And then I was thinking, well, would a woman actually trust a man who says, I'm taking no. the pill, I swear, I swear. So no. uh, part of me wonders, it will never catch on. I'm just curious, no. is this okay? So men have outsourced pregnancy, um, you know, to surrogates that happen to be, you know, people with female reproductive organs, also known usually as women. So to the reason why the research never takes off is because it's really the woman is left holding the baby. Yeah. And so, you know, yes, I would love to see more research. Do I think the... Oh, Hormonal contraception is the best thing available right now. Yes, but I do. Do I think it's the best thing ever? No. Uh, do I think that we should have much more research in reproductive health? Yes. Do I think that men male contraceptive pills should be or male contraception should be um, really researched into? Yes. But I have to be pragmatic. I have to be realistic, and I I think that it's a very hard ask. Uh, for you know men to buy into this uh, and for women as you say to actually trust and so we are left in the situation where if you just use natural methods or condoms you're left with high failure rates you're you know waiting on other people to take you know the responsibility and not everybody has bang on regular periods so you're really left with a lot of tension and anxiety and taking the morning after pill so 
I think everybody needs to work out for themselves what is the best way forward for them. And if they are taking medication, they should always bring in lifestyle all the time, sleep, stress, laughing with your friends, community, going and dipping in the sea, eating plant foods, you know, all these things are so, so vital to life actually and, and i hope that i've been able to get that message across and i hope that everybody when they read our book will get that message that it's not one or the other and so i'm Sorry, just so been, grateful to- we've been we've been crap at not talking about the book so we'll probably have to do another one in the future because there was the two I would biggest love to do another one because there was the two biggest topics we didn't talk about was endometriosis and pcos and, and those kind of things today's a special day that your book is you've got your book in your hand i wonder if you could tell us about your book and your, you co-wrote it with I your daughter. Have to do it again so the book is called living pcos free uh, and the reason i we wrote this book is when i started writing i've been wanting to write a book for about eight years and I had started actually eight years ago and I was following on after a breast surgeon whose topic of discussion was how to prevent breast cancer. And I was just shocked. He went up on the stage and he spoke about mammograms, ultrasound diagnosis, um, fine needle aspiration, not a word about lifestyle, not a word. The topic was how to prevent, not how to diagnose early. And I immediately put my pen down and I thought, you know what, I'm not wasting my time writing a book. It's going to reach very few people. I need to go out there. So I set up a, a, a community, non-for-profit uh, organization where I basically go into schools and teach children all the six pillars of lifestyle, you know, yoga for painful periods, a meditation for uh, the stress during exams, uh, nutrition for, you know, having a bright mind, you know, dancing, Pilates, all these things, because I just felt that that wasn't happening. Then in the pandemic, when the work was a little bit, I had a little bit more time because I was doing my clinics. I was, wasn't operating as much. I started writing a general book when my daughter said to me, mom, why are you writing a book that has got two pages on menopause, two pages on polycystic ovary syndrome, because you have 35 years of experience in so many topics, we should be doing a deep dive. And Rohini herself has PCOS. And I have had so many success stories with my patients. So I thought, let me start writing about a book with, about a condition that is so common, but three quarters of people never get a diagnosis. You know, they don't have a diagnosis at all. They don't ever get a diagnosis. The first time they find out is when they're trying to get pregnant often. And so they're living with acne and with increased uh, hair growth on their faces, carrying excess weight, you know, anxiety, depression, binge eating disorders, snoring, sleeping problems, type two diabetes, insulin resistance. <laughs> I can't tell you. So I started writing the book and the book is divided into three parts. Uh, four parts. The first part is understanding what the condition is. The second part is all about how lifestyle making informed health choices. As I said, if you eat no fruit, eating one fruit. So informed health choices, all about lifestyle. So it's a book, not just for people with PCOS. It's anybody who has somebody with PCOS in their life, but also somebody who just wants to learn more about uh, the body, you know? So I talk about periods and, and lot of myth busting and lots of misinformation I sort of put to aside. And then the third part is actually each symptom of PCOS I take and I tell people what they can do to help themselves, both with uh, lifestyle choices and with um, 
medication. And then the last part, Rohini steps in and what she does. And the lovely Brenda Davis has written the most wonderful foreword for us, you know, made my heart sing. Uh, but Rohini has written about, you know, affirmations and about uh, a 21 day program that they can follow with. We have 40 recipes, uh, you know, all the uh, family recipes that are in there, the turmeric tofu scramble, uh, the, you know, tomato onion dolls, all the different types of things, lentil bolognese, all the lovely, lovely foods. And they can be oil-free, they can be gluten-free. So basically the book is to give people the science as well as the practical guidelines. Because often people get told the information, but they don't know what to do with the information. Mm, brilliant. brilliant. Sounds well, fabulous. I'd like to, I'm going to order your book and then maybe in the future. Let's no, no, do I'm going to send you the book. So I okay. want you to send okay, me I'll your address in it. a minute. Okay, okay, okay promise, yeah, I'd love promise to. we will. So what, the book is called Living with PCOS? Living, or living, what, just, no, no, sorry. Living PCOS Free. Oh, that's living, way better. That's much better. I like that's that. way better. Living PCOS Free, How to Regain Hormonal Health. And can people order lifestyle. that on... People order that on, like, you know... Uh, on yes, on your Amazon, UK Book Depository, in the US... Uh, Waterstones, W.S. Yes. Smith, everywhere. And okay, it's I have links global. on my Instagram as well. Yeah, yeah, I had a look at it. I was reading about it. So yeah, brilliant. Nihu, you are wonderful. And your, your website, for anyone listening, there's your website is a wonderful resource. You've We're got just so a look many wonderful it. workbooks in it. Like there's so many good, uh, I don't know what the words you call them. Fact sheets. Fact, Fact sheets. There's so many of them. And like every, like your book, your website's like an encyclopedia. 25 of years old. So I update them every three years. Jeez, wow. they're good. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of work. Work. Great job. Yeah, really. Well, well, well thank done. you so much, Nito. It's Nito. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're amazing. And thank you for allowing us to raise our hand and interrupt so often. It was... <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. I absolutely loved that. I hope anyone listening there got some take-homes, got some kind of reminder of kind of the, the foundation of... I, I got I got loads of take-homes and I'm not a woman or I'm not someone <laughs> that identifies as a woman and I got loads of take-homes. So I hope you did. Um, need to, very inspiring, powerful. She's a senior consultant um, gynecologist, so pretty amazing lady. Yeah. So uh, yeah, her new book is out. It's called Living PCOS Free. Uh, I'd love to let us know on social media. Like, I think she's brilliant. I think he's amazing. I'd love to have her back onto the podcast to talk about PCOS. Uh, as we say, please share this on social media and Instagram. If you share it, we'll reshare it because we really want to get these messages out to more people. And um, thanks to you for supporting us by listening to our podcast. We're most grateful. We really are. And it's- if you do want to support us any further, we do have our new book available to pre-order. It's called The Veg Box. I'm sure you've heard us talk about it many times. But if you do search online, The Happy Pair at The Veg Box, you will find out more. Yeah, it's all about helping you to eat more plant-based and save money. Ironically, you're going to save money by buying a book. That is our promise. So, uh, yeah. Good promise, Dave. Thanks, Steve. Uh, what, how am I backing that promise up? I'm not. It's only words. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> Anyway, right, we're going to go now. Right, see ya. Bye. 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 I love that. <laughs> how are you going to back that up? I'm not. <laughs> it was only words.